You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Genesis chapter 50, please turn that please turn there in your Bible. And a sermon that's entitled Forgiveness and the Greater Good Theodicy. Begin reading in verse 15, and I'll read through 21. Uh, For context, this is the end of uh, Jacob's life. Jacob has died, and it has set up a a scenario, a possible scenario um, for revenge or forgiveness. Joseph's brothers have done some terrible evils to him. And they're unsure what's going to happen to them now. Uh, their father has died, and now they're in the presence of their brother, who is the most powerful man in the world, really, besides Pharaoh. So I'll now read Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is our hope and desire that you will minister to us today through your word. God, we we believe that your word is authoritative and powerful and reveals what is true about who you are and about how you have organized the world. And help us, God, as we encounter these really big and grand theological doctrines to, to see how practical uh, doctrine is in our life. This is not something just to be studied, but it, it impacts our lives in every day. And God, we, we have a desire to, to love Christ more, and so God, it's my prayer that as we take a deep dive into the problem of evil, that we will understand greater the work that Christ has done on our behalf, and how You have organized this theater of the universe to bring about the greatest good that could ever be known. I pray if there are any here that have not come to know you, that that through the preaching of the word, that they may come alive as they hear the truth of who you are and who Christ is. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it was late one night. probably around 11 o'clock or so, when the rest of my family had gone to bed, and the only other night owl in my family, Brooke, 
my 10-year-old at the time, my oldest daughter. She's not here today, but she's kind of the night owl, the one who likes to think about things and stew on things. She's very much like me in that, in that regard. She comes into the living room, a very serious look on her face, and she says, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. This is, it's important. I say, okay, what's going on? So she starts this conversation with a truth statement, a true theological statement. She says, I need to ask you a question. God knows everything, right? I said, yeah, yes, that's true. God knows everything. And she says, why did God create Adam and Eve if he knew they would bring evil into the world? And see, she's grappling with, even at a young age, what is called the problem of evil. The problem of evil identifies what appears to be a contradiction in the Christian faith or like the Christian worldview, what we profess to be true about God and the nature of reality as we experience it. And really the problem of evil has been around for a very long time, something that humanity has been grappling with for a long, long time. So for instance, usually if you encounter it in literature, you're going to read it according to David Hume, who was an Enlightenment-era critic of religion. So he's born around 1711. And usually when you read it, what you encounter is his phrasing of it. But really, he's ripped off Epicurus. And he spoke of this around 300 years B.C. And here's what Hume says, stating Epicurus. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? So if I could put that in modern, our modern speak, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not all-powerful. Is he all-powerful but not willing? Then he cannot be all-good. And then the big problem, is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? There is evil. And therefore the conclusion by many is, therefore God, as articulated by the Christians, cannot exist. Because we profess a God who is all-powerful, all-good, able to do anything, and yet evil exists. And so they say, therefore, God cannot exist. This is what's called the logical problem of evil. So this would be the problem as people sit around and just stew about things, and they might write propositions up on a board, right? A, B, C, conclusion. This is the logical problem of evil, and it has many different explanations and answers. There's actually good logical answers. But where it comes to real life, there's a different issue. This is called the experiential problem of evil. And this is really what's at root when you see a lot of Christian deconstruction stories. That's the term that's used today for people apostatizing and leaving the faith. Uh, really what's at root is the experiential problem of evil. And this is, this is what that is. It's when you have a profession in your mind and in your heart about who God is, and then something happens to you. You experience something that seems to contradict the reality of the truth you profess. Um, 
then this creates a type of psychological problem, right? Um, you've experienced something, pain, death, sickness, disease, maybe someone's done something to you, and this creates this problem that's not just a problem on a board. It's something you're experiencing in your life. And I wonder today, and, I, and I'm sure that it's true, that you've grappled with this problem before. If a 10-year-old has, I'm sure that you have as well, and maybe you even are grappling with it today, um, this experiential problem of evil. There's this tension that exists. Evil exists in the world. Pain and suffering are real. And then comes the questions. Why, why does God allow this to happen? Why didn't God do something? Does God really care about us? Is God even really there at all? Is any of this even true? That's kind of this, this pattern of thought that can happen. And this problem becomes even worse when it comes to proximity. Right? And what I mean by that is the nearness of it to your life. So I'll ex explain this this way, how proximity makes this worse. There's what's called natural evil and there's what's called moral evil when discussing this problem. So natural evil is something we've all been experiencing for the past several years with COVID. COVID is a natural evil. Um, and it's one thing to hear about people getting sick and hearing about loved ones of other people's families dying. That may cause some of these thoughts in your mind to begin to grapple with these things, but it's another thing to experience it directly. When you're sick, or maybe you're in the hospital, or your loved one dies, right? Now the problem becomes worse. And the problem becomes even worse when you experience personally moral evil. Moral evil is evil that is done by other people, other free agents. Um, when a person does moral evil to you, and you personally experience, this problem becomes incredibly heightened. Um, and I'm sure probably all of you have had someone commit some type of moral evil uh, against you. And so we come to this, this text. It's an incredible text because it introduces to us what is often called the great, uh, a greater good theodicy. But it's incredibly practical because it's found in the context of personal evils done to an individual, moral evil, and then how Joseph, he, he, how does he forgive his brothers? And that's kind of the question that I want to look at and ask today. How is he so forgiving? See, when moral evil is done to you, one of two things will happen. Because evil is like a contagion. That's how you should think about evil in the world. When someone does moral evil to you, it's like a contagion, but far more contagious than COVID. It spreads. So when moral evil is done to you, one of two things will happen. You will e either forgive the person, and if you forgive, then, then you become like a dead end to the contagion. Right? In your forgiving of another person, the moral evil stops. It can't spread anymore. But if you don't forgive, you become the contagion. Someone else's moral evil, if you refuse to forgive, you become morally evil. 
and you perpetuate and spread evil in the world. You become bitter, wrathful, angry, vengeful, jealous, hateful, and moral evil spreads. So I want to ask you today, before we begin, is there a person in your life that you have not forgiven? Even if they never acknowledge that they did anything wrong to you at all, and you're still holding on, it could have been this year, this week, it could have been years ago, 10, 15, 20, 30. People hold on to these things for a long time. And because you fail to forgive, it's made you bitter. And you may hide it around people and in church and around church people, but you know that it's corrupted in at least some regard who you are in your being. And it's even maybe, maybe caused you to doubt God's goodness or that He cares for you at all. So today we'll look at the story of Joseph and his brothers. And as we look at this story, we ask, how does he forgive his brothers? And we need to remember, we're going to encounter some incredible theology and doctrine in this story, but this is a real story that happened to a person like you, right? Joseph is not some make-believe story, a legend. He's a real person with flaws just like you. His brothers were real people just like us. They did something terrible like maybe many of you have done in your life. These are real people, and so though this has tons of theology in it, and I'm sure you're familiar with the great line that we will encounter, it's incredibly practical. And what we'll see is Joseph's, his forgiveness is driven by his beliefs. His beliefs about God and his beliefs about suffering and evil. And these are beliefs we need to adopt. And we see two fundamental beliefs that Joseph has regarding God and suffering and evil, which we need to adopt as well so that we can be forgiving people. And that's my purpose today, is that in hearing these, you would not just say it's a great, that's great theology, but that you would adopt these beliefs and they would become something that you believe so that you can be a forgiving person as God has forgiven us in Christ. So two beliefs of Joseph regarding suffering and evil that enable him to forgive. And the first, you'll see it's on the back of the little bulletin, is this. Believe that God's place is not your place. This is the first belief of Joseph. Believe that God's place is not your place. Look at verse 15 and 17 again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay back for all the evil that we did to him. They're afraid. Their brothers are terrified at this point. Now, to really understand why they're afraid and why their fear is justified, you have to understand how Joseph's life has unfolded. And his life is recorded in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Uh, It's an incredible story. So I'll summarize it for you uh, briefly. You can break it down in in like a couple of acts, like story, right? Act 1. In Genesis 37, we discover that Joseph is the favorite brother. He's got 10 older brothers. His father is Jacob or Israel, the father of the Hebrew people. Joseph is the favorite. He's the youngest. He's the son whom they love. Uh, They give him a coat of many colors, and his brothers recognize how much that 
He's loved by his father, and it begins, hatred begins to grow in their heart. He's a shepherd like his brothers, like his family. Genesis 37, 3-4 puts it this way. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now in addition... Joseph has this dream, and he tells his family this dream, and he says, all of you were bowing down to me, and this enrages the brothers. Their hatred grows even more. His brothers bow down, his mother and his father bow down to Joseph, and this just fuels their hatred. So one day, he's sent out by his father to his brothers, and they see him coming from a long way off, and they have an idea. They hate him so much, they say, let's kill him. We'll kill him out here, we'll come up with this scheme. And one of the brothers interjects and says, let's not just kill him, let's, throw him, let's just throw him in a pit and we'll sell him into slavery. Uh, like that's better, right? So they sell him into slavery for about uh, um, 11 grams of silver, which today would be about $120. So he's human trafficked by his brothers. They then take his coat and they kill an animal, put blood on it, lie to their father, say that their brother was seized by an animal, thrashed and killed, sell him off into slavery. There's act one, right? But don't just think of it as a story. Put yourself in that story. Their, brother, their brothers have sold him for nothing. For, for 120 bucks, he's sold off. He's human trafficked. That's our terminology. Act two, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, who's an Egyptian, Egyptian officer and captain of the guard. And he recognizes that he's incredibly skilled and that anything he does... His management skills are incredible, so he puts him in charge of his whole house. Well, Potiphar's wife, apparently he's a good-looking young guy, begins to covet him and lust after him. And so she wants, she desires him, and she wants to commit adultery with him. And Joseph refuses. He refuses to do that, and he says, how could I do this, this great wickedness and sin against God? And so she, he tries to run away. She grabs his clothes, she screams, she lies, she tells everyone that he tried to rape her. Potiphar retaliates, and he goes to prison. So act three, now he's thrown into prison. His life just keeps getting worse. This moral evil is just continuing to grow and pile up. He's thrown into jail, and the jailkeeper recognizes he's skilled, so he's put in charge of things again. After a time, two of the kings... The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, two of his servants get thrown into jail. Uh, a baker and the cupbearer. And as this plays out, they have, uh, there's a dream. They have this, this dream. And Joseph interprets the dream, right? And he says that uh, the baker, he's going to be executed. The cupbearer will be released. And it takes place exactly as he says, because God is with him. And so the cupbearer gets released. He's like, I'll remember you. I'll remember what you did. I won't forget you. And he totally forgets him. So he languishes in jail for two more years because this guy just didn't care about him. Two more years unjustly in prison. And then Pharaoh begins to have strange dreams. Act 4. Pharaoh has strange dreams regarding cows coming up out of the Nile River. Fat and skinny cows and some more with some sheaves, um, and the cupbearer 
No one in all of the land can interpret these dreams. So the cupbearer remembers, oh, there was, there was Joseph. There's this guy in prison. He, God, like God is with this guy, and he remembers dream. He, he can interpret dreams. So they go back and get him, and long story short, Joseph interprets the dreams correctly. There's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine, and Pharaoh's like, hey, enact your plan. And then he recognizes that God is with Joseph, and whatever he does prospers. Joseph becomes the most powerful man in the known world, other than Pharaoh. Like, he's the hand of Pharaoh. He's like the right-hand man. He runs the whole kingdom. Incredibly powerful uh, man. It's an amazing story. And so there, there he is. He executes the plan. And the final act, there's famine all over the known world. Joseph's family has to seek refuge in Egypt. So Joseph saves his family. There's this back and forth, this kind of secrecy between, he doesn't reveal who he is between him and his brothers, and then he finally, there's the big reveal, that he's Joseph, the brother sold into slavery. And here we are, the brothers for a time, while their father was alive, felt some type of safety, but now their father has died. Their father's died, and now they're afraid. Here's the most powerful man in the world. He's the brother we sold into slavery. Well, these terrible things happened to him. What will he do? He's going to try to kill us. That's what they all think. They all think we're done. He's going to take revenge on us. So they say, let's send word to him, and we'll say it's from our father. And, and in this, it's really a confession. They use the word evil and wickedness, transgression, this is not like, hey, we made a mistake. Um, they know that they're in trouble. Your father gave us this command. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God, of the God of your father. Joseph's response is not what they, th- what they see coming, right? They fear for the worst, but Joseph weeps. He weeps, and I think it's because, really, he's forgiven his brothers a long time before this. This whole time, he hasn't been plotting and waiting for his father to die to enact revenge. He's, he loves his brothers with a sincere heart. He'd already forgiven them a long time ago, but why is the question? His brothers, they come and they fall down before him, fulfilling the, his dream prophecy, they fall down before him. Before they did it, not knowing who he was, but now they know who he is, and they do it. They fall down before him. Joseph forgives him. And verse 9 tells us why. Uh, the first belief that he has as to why he forgives. And that, look at verse 19. He says to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This is a, this is a very important phrase worth meditating upon. Do not fear for am I in the place of God is the reason they should not be afraid. It gets you into the mind of what he's thinking, right? So this is the first belief that we should have if we're going to forgive. When moral evil is done to us, we are not in the place of God. Now there, there are two angles, I think, to kind of look at this phrase. Am I, am I in the place of God? No, I'm not. And the first is this. The brothers are concerned 
chiefly with this, that they have sinned against their brother. That Joseph is the primary offended party. Though they sinned against Joseph, Joseph believes their sin is primarily against God, and he's not God. And I I believe he knows this. Remember what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife when she's trying to get him to commit adultery. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph understands that when a moral evil has occurred, the primary offended party is not the individual sinned against, it's God. A sin committed against a person is wrong, and it is sinful, and we shouldn't downplay it. But it's sinful because primarily the sin is against God. David recognized this as well. You remember David, who was a great sinner like you and I, and he committed adultery and had one of his closest trusted friends killed, murdered. And he understands that his sin with Bathsheba is not primarily against Uriah. David says in Psalm 51, 3-4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So when someone harms you or someone sins against you, does moral evil against you, it's alright to know and to realize that that is wrong and you have been wronged and sinned against, and evil has been committed. But when your perspective is such that you do not think of God as the primary offended party, but you as the primary offended party, that is when it begins to consume you. You dwell upon it, right? Your rights have been violated. Your rights have been trampled. How this great evil has been done against you It's only about you, and you don't see beyond yourself to what's really gone on here. When you do that, you place yourself in the place of God as the one who is supremely wronged, and your place is not God's place. That's the first angle. Second angle, I think this is clear as well. Am I in the place of God also means is vengeance or retaliation up to me? Now, Joseph is a man under the sovereignty of God, and by the grace of God, he knows what only will later become explicit in God's law through the prophet Moses. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, you do not take vengeance... God is the one who takes vengeance. He understands this before it's explicitly revealed by God's grace. Now, this trusting of God and leaving it to God to right wrongs and to take vengeance becomes incredibly um, clear in the New Testament. In Romans 12, 19 through 21, we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, for by so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
We are not to be people who seek retribution and vengeance. That's not our place. That's God's place. That's God's lane. Now, we have to, I think, differentiate between justice and vengeance, right? So, for instance, we ought to be people who, who do seek justice. Now, if someone were sexually abused in church, right, a child or another person, we are obligated under the law to report that incident to the authorities and to seek justice under the law. Um, I would say that we're also obligated before God to do that because God has, he has equipped the governing authorities with the sword to punish evil. So to not report such an offense can be seen, I think rightly so, as going against God. That's seeking justice, right? That's different than seeking retribution or vengeance. Let's say, for instance, so you can see the difference. Let's say, for instance, that uh, my wife and I are out driving around Lawton. Lawton makes this illustration even more realistic. <laughs> and some gang members, get a, they do a drive-by shooting at someone else, and they hit my wife. I see his face. I identify the man. My wife dies, and we go to court, and the man gets off scot-free. And I know his face. I know what gang he's in. There hasn't been any justice. So I call up a couple of my army buddies, a couple of the guys that I can call up and say, hey, uh, we're about to do something, and uh, you can't talk about it with anybody, but just bring your stuff. And let's say we get strapped up head to toe in our old gear, and we go and we seek street justice, retribution, and we go and we take vengeance, and it's an eye for an eye, and we, and we kill the whole gang. That's vengeance, right? That's attempting to play God. That's putting yourself in God's place, not trusting in how God's plan will unfold and trusting Him to seek retribution and to be just. But it could be much more subtle than that, right? And it usually is. This is how people usually play God. You place yourself in God's place, and there's more than one way to harm someone than by seeking physical retribution. You can get back at someone and put yourself in the place of God simply by holding a grudge against them forever and making them know it. Or maybe never talking to them again. Right? Your family member. You say, I'm never going to talk to them again. And to make them feel it. They did wrong to me, and they're going to pay. That's placing yourself in the place of God. Or you might talk about them behind their back. You might seek to damage their reputation. Right? You might not be able to get back at them physically, but you say, I'm going to damage their reputation in the world. I'll slander them so that everyone knows what type of evil and vile person they are. This is also vindictive, right? This is seeking retribution for yourself. That's also placing yourself in God's place. And vengeance does not belong to us. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We are not to avenge ourselves, we are told. And that means 
seeking that small retribution of making the person know how much you haven't gotten over whatever happened. Joseph, his, he forgives his brothers. It's an incredible picture. It's a moving picture. But he can do so, right? Even if the brothers feel guilty and they don't feel like he's forgiven them, he's already forgiven them. And he forgave them a long time ago. And he did so because of his beliefs. And the first one is that he knows his place is not God's place. And we need to know that as well. Now the second belief of Joseph that we should have is that we need to believe that God's intentions are greater than our perception. We are not able to perceive what God does in the world usually until far after the fact. So we are to believe that God's intentions are greater than our perceptions. There's this old, there's this old little quip, uh, and I'm sure you can identify with the truthfulness of it. You can switch the, the, uh, the roles of the man and the wife if you want, but a man was recounting to his friend about how every time he and his wife argued and would get into a fight, that she would always get his historical. And the friend would say, don't you mean that she's hysterical? And he said, no, I mean every time we get in a fight, she brings up everything I've ever done to her in the past. She gets historical. And we are all like that at times, right? We have a way of looking back at our past from a very self-centered um, way of seeing things, right? We see ourselves, we don't look at it as a, as a God-centered way of looking at the past, but a self-centered way. And Joseph, he had, a, he had a, I don't even know what to call his past. Can you call it amazing? You can call it amazing where he ended up, but what do you call all those years of all that, that real moral evil that was done to him? It is an amazing past, but he has an incredible past and he could have looked at his past either from a God-centered way or a very self-centered way. And had he looked at it from a self-centered way, things could have gone very wrong in this story. So many people look at the past in a self-centered way. They say things like this, you just don't understand what's been done to me. You don't know what they did to me when I was young. You can't identify with how I've been treated. You don't realize what I've been through all of these years and how I've dealt with this for all of these years. It could have been, it could have been years ago. It could have been 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And, and when things are viewed like this, like there's some evil that's been done to you in your past, it's usually seen as this is totally meaningless evil that's been done to me that I've just had to deal with the ramifications of it for my whole life. But everything then begins to be interpreted through the lens of this moral evil that has occurred. So people become bitter and angry and vindictive. It controls their life. They become hateful. Uh, the evil, and, and this is what happens, the evil that is done to them makes them morally evil. And often what it results is substance abuse. So it may have happened. And, and I'm thinking of a family member of mine that is now 
gone, drank themselves to death. For 30 years, the story was that there was this evil done to them and they could never forgive. And it was always viewed in this way and so substance abuse began and that snowballed into other abusive relationships eventually leading to alcoholism and literally drinking themselves to death because they viewed what happened to them as totally meaningless, no reason and no purpose, and they could never, ever move beyond it. Now just think if Joseph had, if he were to interpret his life in this self-centered manner. Let's just do an exercise to see how things could have been different. Right, Joseph says, you don't realize what my brothers have done to me. They, they literally sold me into slavery for $120. And so the bitterness grows in his life and in his heart, and the hatred begins to, it begins to blossom. And then a slave master's wife lied about me, said I tried to rape her, and now I'm thrown in jail. I was thrown in jail for years because someone lied about me. And the bitterness just grows and grows. It takes deep root, and the anger begins, it begins to swell up and consume everything about who Joseph is and how often his thoughts are about vengeance on his brother and on Potiphar. And then Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream, and he thinks, this is it, I'm getting out of here. And the cupbearer just forgets about him. So for two years, he just languishes in jail, and all he thinks about is how he hates the cupbearer because the cupbearer just forgot him. How he hates his brothers, he hates Potiphar, he hates the cupbearer, and how if he ever got out, they would pay. Now Joseph's anger and fury, they're full grown. And the worst thing that could happen to him happens to him. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams and gets out of jail, becomes the most powerful man in the world. But because he refused to see things from God's perspective, he was so self-centered, he's now full of anger, bitterness, wrath. So now he's the most powerful man in the world. After he interprets Pharaoh's dream and he's being put in charge of everything, the first thing he does is he, he says, go get that cupbearer. He go gets the cupbearer, and he has him publicly executed. And now he says, send soldiers back to my family and kill all of my brothers. And it's done. Whatever he says is done. So they kill all of his family. Then he says, go get Potiphar and have him publicly hung up in the square. Hang him and his wife. So now he's hung. He's killed everyone. He's taken total vengeance, but he's still consumed with hatred and wrath. Because the one he hates most of all is God who let all of this happen to him and he can't strike out at God. So now he lives the rest of his days surrounded by total wealth, having taken vengeance, still consumed with hatred. That's how his life could have gone. That's how the story could have gone. But here we are. Jacob is dead. and The brothers think this is what's going to happen. Maybe that's because this is what they would do. I don't know. But that isn't the way its story goes. Because Joseph does not look at his life in a self-centered way. He believes something about God that most people do not believe. 
Joseph believed something about God that most Americans certainly do not believe. And therefore, because he does, he's able to forgive them. Joseph believes that God is so sovereign that he is able to wield the evil of men for greater goods. Notice I did not say that God turns evil for good. Joseph believes, and it's in the text, that God wields evil for good. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is it? You meant evil. We'll make it easy. God meant evil for good. Let's start with the big picture. Okay. Joseph believes that it is God's intent to bring him to Egypt, to raise him up to this position, and to equip him with the skills and the abilities that he has so that he might become the savior of the known world. Joseph is the savior of the known world. Joseph is also the Savior of Israel. Though the nation of Israel is tiny at this time, it's only 70, all of the promises of God hinge upon these 70 people. God has raised Joseph up to the position to preserve his promise of the coming Messiah. If there is no Joseph, there is no promise. Now, what is interesting to me at this point is there's this incredible tension, I think, if you really think about it. God intends Joseph to be the savior of his people and thus to bring about the nation of Israel, the kings, the Messiah, Christ. That's Joseph's role. He's been raised up for this purpose. If Joseph succumbs to the moral evil that's been done to him and he himself becomes morally evil, and he gives in to the temptation to not forgive, and Joseph takes vengeance upon his brothers, the whole promise is over. There will be no Israel, there will be no kingdom, there will be no kings, there will be no Messiah, there will be no Jesus. If Joseph does not forgive and takes vengeance on his brothers, all of the promises of God are over. But by God's grace, God has given Joseph a mind that is not Joseph-centered, right? It's God-centered. And he understands that God had the intention to raise him up for this purpose so that many people would be saved. It's all on the line. But Joseph, he's a man of faith, and he believes rightly about God that God intended everything that happened in his life. So you might ask this question. Then maybe you, you would ask, does this mean that God intends evil? Now, at this point, we have to do a few things. We have to be very careful with what the text says here. And second, you have to believe whatever it says here. 
Um, and we also must make accurate qualifications of what is stated so that we can understand it rightly. Okay, are you ready? We're about to jump in now to the deep waters, but they're not dangerous waters. These are refreshing and cool waters that will help you and equip you to understand how to forgive people when sinned against. Joseph's brothers have committed grotesque acts of moral evil against him. Joseph, however, is merciful and he's forgiving because of his understanding of God's sovereignty over his life and over evil. Joseph tells his brothers, again, look at your text so you can see it, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, the word here in Hebrew for evil, or for meant, sorry, the word for meant, it carries kind of this range of ideas that mean to plan or to consider, to think or to intend. So it gets into the I, what is going on in the brother's mind when they do what they do? What did they mean to do when they did it? And the text says, when they did what they did, they meant evil. It's a voluntary action. Uh, you can't have intention without voluntary actions of voluntary free agents. They intended evil. That's precisely why the brothers' actions are wrong, because they intended to do it. This wasn't just a mistake. This is something that they wanted to do. Now, simultaneously, the same word is used of God. God has an intention in the very action of his brothers. Of all of the moral evil done to Joseph, there is a dual intention happening. The intention of God in the evil is good. God's intention is good. But the agent of bringing good is the evil of the brothers. I know it's difficult to grasp. At this point, some people will try to soften what the text clearly says. Right? They try to soften the meaning. They say something to the effect of, well, God is, God is all-powerful. He's able even to turn evil for good. God's able to turn the evil of people into something good. This, of course, changes the meaning of the text entirely and is not what the text says. But nevertheless, even highly educated theologians try to do this. For instance, Kenneth Matthews, who is a professor of systematic theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this. While he acknowledges the parallelism that exists in the text, he states, Joseph explains that God transformed their evil intention into good. Achieving the deliverance of many peoples, he transformed it. But this is not the plain meaning of the text. Randy Alcorn agrees that this is not the plain meaning of the text. He says, God meant it for good, communicates something far stronger than God being handed lemons and making lemonade. God did not merely make the best of a bad situation. On the contrary, fully aware of what Joseph's brothers would do and fully permitting their sin, God intended that the bad situation, which he could have prevented, but didn't be used for good. He did so in accordance with his plan from eternity past. And in agreement also is D.A. Carson, who speaks of God's sovereign plan unfolding in such a manner 
that while men intend evil, God simultaneously does not merely make good out of evil, but intends man's evil actions for some greater good. And this is where the term greater good theodicy comes from. It comes from this text and what Joseph says. Now, this must be, must be understood with some qualifications okay, about who is doing the evil. Because we might wrongly assume that God is the one doing the evil. But that isn't the case. And this is part of a much larger series, but I'll summarize it quickly. We learned this lesson from the book of Job. In the book of Job, we learned the distinction between what is called, when looking at this topic, between primary and secondary causes and also what is called remote and proximate causes. So I'll I'll try to explain it to you. So in the book of Job, nothing happens to Job except for by God's permission and decree. Satan can't even act until God says act. Once God says act, the primary cause of everything that happens to Job is God. And that Job confesses it to his wife. Shall we accept good from God and not evil? That all the calamity that's happened to him, right? And, and all this Job spoke rightly. That's what the text tells us. But the primary, God is the primary actor. The proximate actor who carries this out is free agents, free persons, Satan, the Chaldeans. God does not raid Joseph. God does not directly do the calamity to Joseph, though it happens by permission. It's the, it's the proximate actor. And so what we see there in the text is that God might be sovereign over all that takes place and yet not do the evil that is done, though it is done in accordance to his plan and his will. To understand how this can happen, it's helpful to understand the nature of God's wills. So I'll speak to you in three different ways regarding God's will. You've probably heard some of this before in Sunday school class. But it is of massive importance. There is what is called God's revealed will um, and His secret will. So first, the secret will, often called the decorative will or the, the decreed will. It is what God has planned from eternity past about how history will unfold We don't know how the future will unfold. God hasn't told us that, but it's how God has decreed all things to take place in this world. That's his secret will. For instance, the fall of Adam and Eve, that's part of his secret will. Uh, The sin of Joseph's brothers, this is all part of his decree. Things that will unfold. Everything that happens in our life, my life and in your life, God has decreed. We don't know what he's decreed for us in the future, but we do know his revealed will. His prescriptive will tells us what we ought and ought not to do. These are the Ten Commandments. What he tells us we, what is permitted, what's not permitted. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. There's, there's only one God. You have one God. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are revealed. This is God's revealed will. But there's also the will of disposition. And God's will of disposition tells us what he's like inwardly, maybe in a more clear way that his prescriptive will doesn't. For instance, Ezekiel 18.23 tells us 
Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So we can understand from this, what, God, what is God's nature? God's nature is to not want people to be destroyed in their sin. He has a general benevolent will toward all of his creatures, that everyone would repent and turn to him and live. That's his disposition. And when we come to this story, we see that God's sovereign decree and his permission of sin is not a moral approval of it. Right? That God may, he, he has decreed everything that happened to Joseph, all of the moral evil done to him, but at the same time, he does not approve of it. It's against his revealed will and it's against his will of disposition. It helps us understand how God might forbid in his law what Joseph's brothers did and yet at the same time decree that it happens. God decreed what happened and at the same time hated that his brothers did it. Does God intend evil? The biblical answer is clear. God doesn't intend evil for evil's sake, but God does intend evil to occur to accomplish some greater good that is beyond often our ability to perceive at any given moment. A chain of events, and you can't see this till afterward, but a chain of events in my life, both natural evil and moral evil, I believe, are what led me to become a Christian. In fact, looking back on my life, I don't see another scenario play out where I become who I am apart from all of the natural evil and all of the moral evil that ever happened in my life. And I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe for a second that God was like, man, in my plan, you know, he becomes a Christian, but look at this evil i got to call all these audibles like a coach on the sideline. I'm calling audibles, and we can see if we can get it here. I believe he ordained it all from eternity past in his great wisdom and in his kindness to do a greater good for me than I could have ever known, which is to come to an understanding and to a knowledge of who God is in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian today, and I hope all of you are Christians, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ God has ordained every evil that you have ever encountered or ever will encounter for your good. He's not going to turn it for good. He's decreed it from eternity past for your good. And this is what Romans 8.28 tells us. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The problem is, in your mind, you often don't think of the greatest good as what God does. For God, the greatest good for you is to be conformed into the image of His Son. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. That's the good of Romans 8, 28-29. (coughs) And God knows what it takes for you. And it's different for each of you. You will suffer. You will encounter evil. You will be sinned against. You will be tempted not to forgive. And all of it is measured through God's will, like His general disposition of goodness toward you. If it weren't good for you, God would not have decreed it for you. 
you will not experience one more drop of evil in your life that is necessary for God to do absolute goodness to you, making you into the image of Christ. Listen to how Spurgeon says this. Further, when once we know that God has done anything, that fact forbids any question concerning it. It must be right because He did it. I may not be able to tell why, but God knows why He did it. He might not tell me the reason, but He has a reason, for the Lord never acts unreasonably. There never was any action of His, however sovereign or autocratic it might appear to be, but was done after the counsel of His own will. Infinite wisdom dictates what absolute sovereignty decrees. God is never arbitrary or tyrannical. He does as He wills, but He always wills to do that which is not only most for His own glory, but also most for our real good. How dare we question anything that God does? God does intend evil to happen to His children. This fact is indisputable in the Bible. Sometimes, beloved, He does decree evil happen for us, but only ever is it sifted through His kind and benevolent loving hands for our greater good that we could never experience without it. This is God's Word, and I believe that it is true Joseph believed that it was true. And because he believed it was true, he was able to forgive his brothers. This is called a greater good theodicy. Answering the problem of evil in this way. For God's people, God has decreed even evil for our good. We are to believe God's intentions for us are greater than our perceptions. Now, understanding this reality is not just paramount for us to be able to forgive people. You cannot understand the Bible without it. You cannot understand the trajectory of the Bible and where the Bible is going, the apex of the Bible. You can't even understand it without understanding this truth. This truth as revealed in Joseph is only a fraction of what is revealed in what happened to Jesus Christ. God decreed the greatest evil ever, ever to be perpetrated by man, to be unleashed by the mind of man, by the will of man. The greatest sin ever committed, the greatest evil, God decreed it. The crucifixion of His only Son, whom He loved from eternity past. Grotesque moral evils done to Jesus Christ. Decreed by God, carried out at the hands of lawless men, for the greatest good in the entire universe. And this is what I call the greatest good theodicy. The greatest good theodicy. What happened to Christ cannot happen apart from God decreeing evil in the world. And this is how the apostles preached. If you think this is just some thing conjured up in the mind of some guy who likes theology, the apostles preached this and people were converted under this preaching. At the day of Pentecost, Peter preached this, Acts 2, 22-23. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God decreed the evil actions of men. They did it and they're accountable for it. And God brought about it the greatest good in the universe. And as the, as the church gathers together and begins to pray in Acts 4, they pray to their sovereign Lord. They say in Acts 4, truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In Jesus, we see these truths of the story of Joseph come, Joseph come to their fruition, to their, to their fullest revelation, that God does not take the evil actions of men and say, oh, you know, I'm the greatest chess player that's ever played chess. No one can out-chess me. Man may do their evil. Satan may do their evil. But I've got the pieces lined up in just the right way where Christ will come and I'll forgive people's sins. The truth of Scripture is that God has decreed from eternity past everything that takes place, even the moral evil of men. And He intends through evil, the evil actions of men to crucify Christ to bring about the greatest good in the known universe. And the greatest good in the known universe is this. That just one person, if it were just one, it would be worth all of the evil ever that has ever occurred on earth if just one person would come to know God as He truly is. And apart from the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we could never know God as a Savior. We might know Him as good, as benevolent, but we could never know Him as a God who would love His creatures so much that He would die for them. And to know God as a Savior, to see His glory in Jesus Christ, and to know Him is infinitely greater than any evil ever done or could ever be done to you. Jesus was not God's reaction to evil. He wasn't a plan put in place after the fall. He was His plan from eternity past to reveal fully all of the attributes of God that we might know Him. And this, this might be called the greatest good theodicy. Answering the problem of evil in a Christ-centered way. Today we have seen two beliefs of Joseph regarding suffering and evil which allowed him to forgive his brothers. We ought to adopt them. Believe God's place is not your place. Believe God's intentions are greater than your perceptions. And our passage today in this section, though it's filled with incredible theology, it's packed with this incredible theology. It's incredibly practical because at the heart of it, all is a story about forgiveness. How can you forgive when someone has really done evil to you? Often we say, eh, I'll forgive, I forgive them, but I'm never going to forget. Maybe you've said that. Have you ever said that? I'll forgive them, like you're a Christian, you know, that's our duty. I'll forgive them, I'm never going to forget it. This really isn't forgiveness God's way. 
God's way of forgiving is found in Micah 7, 18 through 19. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in, the st- in steadfast love. He will get, again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In ancient times, the depths of the sea, it's like this totally inaccessible place, right? If it's cast into the depths of the sea, it's gone, forgotten, could never be got at again. Like, our way of understanding this today would be like saying, God casts our iniquities into a black hole. It goes in there, and it's gone forever. God doesn't doesn't forgive us and then remember our sins and bring them up later. He doesn't forgive and say, I'll never forget. God forgives us in Christ, and He throws away our iniquities into a place where they can never be found again. And that is how we are to forgive people in Christ. At some time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, someone will commit some act of moral evil against you. It probably won't be on the scale of Joseph's brothers, Lord willing. They may sin against you, hurt your feelings. They may harm your reputation, verbally, physically, sexually. We live in a fallen world. Terrible, evil things happen in this world. Sometime in your life, you will have a moral evil done to you. And when you do, you can either be like God and forgive Forgive them because you're forgiven in Christ. Cast their sins into the depths of the sea. Or you can hold a grudge. And your failure to forgive will consume you. You will become bitter and angry. The moral evil done to you will make you morally evil. But because of Christ, because of what he's done for us, we can forgive. This is how we're called to forgive, because Christ has forgiven us. No doubt you've been sinned against if you're here. I'm sure everyone here has. Who hasn't? But can we, can we just think for a minute, have we, even in the slightest sense, been sinned against as we've sinned against God? It can't even be compared And God forgives us, so we ought to be forgiving because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that your word would conform us into the image of Christ, change our ways of thinking of the world, Lord, and help us to be forgiving people. And God, if there's any here that is not a Christian, I pray that they would see in Jesus the treasure of the universe the greatest good that you could ever give to anyone. Help them to see him and behold him as the one worthy of selling everything they have in their life that they might obtain Christ. I pray that you would grant repentance leading to eternal life. In Jesus' name, Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.